Welcome to episode five of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper Jepson, and I'm so glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, beginning in September 2016, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud on this podcast, and then I'll be riffing a bit on what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter from my book, and I'll remind you, you don't need to necessarily listen to these episodes or read the chapters of my book in order. To whet your appetite of what this podcast will be like, I'll be releasing the first six episodes this summer. The rest will be coming starting in September. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure where this podcast will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me, and here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so that each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each new episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at shechanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 5. Sensemaking, Masculine and Feminine Bearings. Defining exactly what constitutes masculine and feminine energies is a daunting task to say the least. When we set out to define something as this or that, our black and white minds naturally want to kick into overdrive and debate the point senselessly, like a persnickety line editor fighting over the placement of a semicolon. But here's a possibility I'd offer up to prepare your palate and make it a little easier. You and I are most likely going to disagree on a number of things. And that's to be expected. It's not good, bad, right, wrong, or mean. It's just a natural consequence of a complex and sticky conversation that I've seen play out time and time again. So please be open to it. Try not to let it rattle you or break your train of thought. And if that doesn't work and you feel like you're squelching your own opinions and truth in favor of something I'm sharing with you here, please take that moment to make yourself right. Opt to stand more fully in your beliefs and experiences, which might differ greatly from my own. I would love nothing more than to have my words spark a juicy discourse, some cognitive friction, or at least a noteworthy pause before swallowing anything whole. Because deciding what is associated with masculine energy and what is more aptly considered feminine energy is a deeply personal process, and it's far from a clean one. So it makes sense that our interpretations might differ slightly, if not significantly. I even had minor skirmishes with myself about this. For instance, I've always loved Clarissa Pinkoli Estes' definition of the wild woman in Women Who Run With the Wolves. But I got confused about what feminine and what was feminine and what was masculine after reading recently reading this again. She is the source, the light, the night the dark, the daybreak. She is the smell of good mud and the back leg of the fox. She is the voice that says this way, this way. She is the one who thunders after injustice. 
A healthy woman is much like a wolf, robust, chock full, strong life force, life-giving, territorial, territorially aware. She resides in the guts, not the head. She can track and run and summon and repel. Was this wild woman archetype an instance of a woman having a fully integrated masculine and feminine energies? Or was it solely feminine? I honestly don't know. But I suspect it has something to do with the blurry line that happens when these two energies intersect inside a woman's body. Kind of like when one tide goes out and the other tide goes in. They're part of the same ocean, but it's hard to distinguish the outgoing from the incoming. Agreeing on the exact definition for each isn't the point. I'll even go as so far as to say it doesn't even matter. What does matter is that the conversation starts happening. The intention, intention I'm putting out there for myself, with you as my witness, is to see the masculine and the feminine as two distinct energies that live inside one body. So I'll extend that same invitation to you. First, see them as distinct, then get curious about how they differ. We'll get to how they dance together and don't inside a body later. But for now, let's simply tease them apart to get our bearings. My experience of engaging in a conversation about the feminine, either with myself or in the company of others, has been riddled with conflict and paradox, feeling both urgent and galvanizing as much as it has superfluous and polarizing. It has felt stale and charged, engaging and repulsive, timely and completely irrelevant. And yet, there is this insistent and firm pushing between my shoulder blades, even as I have resisted, causing me to keep engaging with it, holding space for myself and others to explore it. Why is that? We're resistant to a conversation we don't know how to have, which is scary. Exploring this with other women has helped me grease the skids. Each year, a group of eight different women from my She Changes community come together for one evening a month during the dark of winter so we can, so we can hold space for ourselves, individually and collectively, to explore, define, and shape what it means to be a woman today. My women's circle is part book club, part group coaching, part salon, but mostly it's a scrumptious feast of questions, opinions, shared stories, and varied experiences. The topic for the second gathering of this circle is always the same, unpacking the feminine. Each year when we arrive at the doorstep of this conversation of the feminine, the feeling is generally the same, desire mixed with resistance like two traffic cops sending conflicting messages to an unassuming driver. Let's talk about it, but let's not. Let's define it, but let's not label anything. Let's talk specifically about women, but let's talk about humanity as a whole. Let's dig deeper into this, but let's move on from this. There is generally sighing and frustration, but there's often a good amount of energy and motivation present as well. One thing is always guaranteed. There's lots of stuckness and swirling. It's never a wasted or unproductive conversation, but it's a delicious hot mess of a discussion, uncomfortable and hard, illuminating and validating. The topic of the feminine is convoluted and complex, like 20 different topics bundled up into one big wet ball of dryerland. 
undefined and yet undeniable in its existence. What is the feminine? As I've teased that question apart each year in these circles of women, it starts to become clearer why we're swirling in an eddy. Often embedded in our conversations about the feminine, like hidden folders inside a big icon, are gender, sexism, identity, our society's pervasive need to label and put things in boxes, the media's role in stereotyping, inequality, the role of women in leading the world, oppression, violence, silence, progress or lack thereof, evolution, desire, politics, the human condition, our children's future, the state of our environment, community, service, humanity, love, our interconnectedness. You see what I mean? It reminds me of that graphic illustration that was floating around Facebook a few years ago, the one that showed two stick figures, one with a mass of scribbled lines floating out in a speech bubble from her head. The first one looks at this colorful snarl of lines and asks the second one, what the hell is that? The second one says, oh, just my mind. My point is this, when it comes to talking about the feminine, it's often the perfect storm of overwhelm, lack of urgency, and being woefully out of practice at how to go about it. How do we even begin to have such a complex conversation? And frankly, what's the rush? We can get away without having it, right? We can just throw our hands up and say, I don't know, roll over and keep playing possum like we don't care and it doesn't matter. I have been right there in that spot on many days. And yet it feels like the feminine is critically important and extremely timely. It's complex to talk about the feminine because it's intricately connected to all these other really charged topics. I've come to believe our conversations about the feminine or lack thereof are at the source of a lot of our a lot of these issues we face in the world. Like the molten liquid at the center of the earth, the feminine is at the core of many of our conversations, even if we don't specifically name it. The tricky part is getting at the core takes some serious mining down through bedrock. And we can't have a conversation about the feminine in isolation from the masculine. They go together, which means understanding masculine and feminine energies is one of the most central conversations of our time. I've heard the question many times, why do we even need to have why do we even have to label it as masculine or feminine? Why can't we just talk about it being me or you, being human? Why do we feel this need to assign and attach qualities to each energy? This is feminine, but that is masculine. Those are great questions. I've asked them myself many times. And yet I always have the same reaction. This visceral response that starts to make my body vibrate a little. Not quite frustration, I can only describe it as urgency. Interestingly, it's the same bodily response I feel when I hear a highly accomplished woman say in a public forum that her success as a leader has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. It's the sensation of an opportunity being missed. What if that leader's success had everything to do with her being a woman because she chose to lead, knowingly or unknowingly, from feminine principles? 
We missed the chance to acknowledge it, even celebrate it. In fact, we actively denied it, effectively making it irrelevant. I am often frustrated by our society's tendency to dilute or neutralize distinctly different topics by seeking to make them the same. I can't help but think it's an inherent resistance to being with differences. If something doesn't immediately compute, we power it down by addressing it from a neutral place, somewhere in the middle, which is fabulous when it comes to collaboration, negotiation, and compromise, but it sucks when it comes to tapping into our fullest range of humanity. How can we reclaim what we cannot first name? In our attempt to not label or put things in boxes, we've inadvertently narrowed the range and watered down the content of our conversations about the energy that lives inside all of us. By allowing our discussions about the masculine and the feminine to morph into male and female experiences, we've essentially reduced our massive landscape to a tiny acre of common ground, gender, on which we're all expected to gather. The masculine and feminine are two sides of an ancient coin we've all been given. We don't talk about the moon and the sun using the same language, labeling one good or strong and the other bad or soft. We readily acknowledge these two atmospheric entities as distinct, even though they're somewhat similarly referenced. One represents solar energy, a vastly different concept than lunar energy. One pulls the tides and waxes and wanes in degrees over the course of a month. The other quickly heats up our atmosphere and moves in and out of our experience in a matter of hours. One is blinding and radiates heat from within that makes it impossible to get near. The other is dark and cold, reflecting light from outside it, making it infinitely more subtle and approachable. We hold them as different and discuss them as such, not feeling the need to devalue one side over the other because they're both taking up space in our sky. In a more apt analogy, consider our conversations about the left and right hemispheres of our brains. Granted, our research and conversation has often favored one side over the other, suggesting right brain people make better X's and left brain people make better Y's. But there's no denying that we need both sides of our brains. We get the wholeness of our brain, even as we see the distinct function and purpose of its parts. My intention is to engage in a conversation about the feminine energy within myself, not as a means to exclude my masculine energy, but to actually consider it as the other half of my whole. As I set out to define what traits of mine I associate with a masculine and what traits I associate with a feminine, I felt like I was being led farther and farther away from myself into the world of academia, Jungian theory, and the realm of the spiritual slash wellness loud talkers on the internet. More than just information or context, I felt like the more I read out there, the more I got mired in the muck of our cultural history, politics, activism, or gender. It felt like a tug of war with two sides, and I wanted to be the rope itself. Nothing was working, and I was losing steam fast, becoming numbed by information, distracted by others' compelling and passionate opinions, and more keenly aware of how, I very, how very much I didn't know. 
What I know now is that I wasn't hungry for more data, insights, and perspectives from the outside. I was simply resistant to having a deeply personal conversation inside myself. Thankfully, something in me cut through the gunk, revealing that I was, in fact, embarking on a deeply personal quest. Calling this out for myself more specifically helped me to reframe my approach, having me see that I am enough just as I am, and I knew how to do this. Finally, there was nowhere to run but in. I had navigated these tumultuous waters before, the crisis moments that can offer you a crash course in inner resourcefulness and teach you about the resilience of the human spirit. Years ago, I gave birth to a child when I was 20 weeks, 21 weeks pregnant. Abortion is the technical term, as the cantankerous insurance adjuster informed my broken heart. But it was not this, a situation that clinical coding term could do justice. It was one of my moments of truth. It was an experience that laid me bare, tested my faith, fortified my spirit, and cemented my marriage all in the matter of three days we had to decide the life or death of our unborn son who had Down syndrome. We didn't have time to read books. I don't remember leveraging the power of the internet back then, but I do remember how incredibly heavy our heads were with statistics and test results and probabilities. We had so many questions but needed answers immediately. We had only a few days before the choice would be made for us and we would be granted a life with a special needs child. So we gathered information frantically. We turned to people mostly and their stories that they most generously shared, however hard, these were strangers we were connected with, usually over the phone, and we bonded with them because they had walked in our shoes and knew in their bones that there was no right answer, no matter what they shared or what we decided. In those few precious days, my husband and I opened our hearts, held each other, listened deeply, and made our decision. Then, two painfully long days later, on a gray day in March, while the hospital discreetly coordinated nurses and staff who believed in pro-choice, I gave birth to our son Silas, knowing full well he wouldn't survive outside my womb, and held him in my arms as we wept. We loved him with every fiber of our being in those moments, even as we were riddled with angst and doubt over our decision, and somehow found the strength to keep breathing, breath by jagged breath, through that passage of our family's story. In reflecting on that day much later, it felt as if another wiser woman swooped in in my proxy and spared me the pain, helping me to have the grace and presence of mind to thank this son of ours for choosing us to be his parents, however briefly, and for being our best teacher. I remember assuring him we would be okay that he could return back to the spirit world on that March morning as I looked at the flock of seagulls swirling outside our window, barely seeing the difference between their white feathers and the cold gray sky. My son died in my arms that day. That still feels so oddly surreal to write as I now spend my days hugging two other sons who are very much alive. Words cannot describe the degree of vulnerability I still feel to this day as I write this story 10 years later. I am at peace, proud even, of our decision, and yet 
have told versions of this story to countless audiences. But there's something about the written word that has me feel more vulnerable, as if I'm taking more of a risk. I guess because so often our story has been a gift we've given to people we've trusted, a piece of ourselves we lovingly place like a fragile shell into someone else's hands that we can see and feel with our hearts. But words on a page can be manipulated, misconstrued, or taken out of context, away from the heart and soul of a story. But this is the story of how I became a seeker, which, I soon learned, was my way of making sense of myself in that moment. It was also, oddly, the path back to the artist in me, the one I had mocked cruelly and buried by prefacing what I put out into the world with mean-spirited commentary like, I'm really out there, or guess I'm getting my money out of that art major, as if I were warning people that taking me, my work, my ideas, my perspectives, my feelings, seriously would be a hazard, would be hazardous or not worthy of their time. I started to trust that my experience of the world around me was valuable. What followed from that experience was a long and conspicuously quiet maternity leave with no baby. I had full breasts but empty arms. I had no more tears to cry, and then, amazingly enough, more would be produced. I had people who knew I had been pregnant stop and ask me in the grocery store, and then later, back at work, how the baby was doing. Needless to say, I entered a spiritual crisis. Because of how politically charged our decision was to terminate the pregnancy, I didn't feel safe to talk freely about my experience which meant that my words became a form of constipation, backing me up, slowing me down. I finally stopped talking, except to my husband and an amazing therapist, and started writing. It was the writing that saved me, and then the art. Putting words on a page helped me to make sense of what, I had, what had just happened and how I felt about it. Through that process, I began to crave a connection with someone, something, anything, really, that would help illuminate my spiritual beliefs, which until this time had been in the shadows. I guess I hadn't needed them. I went to go pray, and I didn't know who or what I was praying to, so I stopped, feeling like an ass, a fraud, an imposter. Dead end. Having been baptized and confirmed, I tried to recall what that all meant and the underpinnings of what I had been taught to believe. Again, I came up empty. Nada. So I turned to what I had always trusted, books, data, and stories shared by others. I read and wrote about what I read. I interviewed countless spiritual leaders about their beliefs and the constructs of their religions and spiritual practices. On one such occasion, I recall visiting my neighbor at his place of work, his parish. He was a minister at a congregational church in the next town. I had two burning questions for him. One, does your faith believe that when you die, that's it, you're done, you get one try? And two, where are women represented in your religion? I don't see me represented here, only men. He smiled because he loved me, and I suspect he appreciated my curious mind. His answers, one, yes, this is it, and two, good question, I hear that one a lot offered me the insight I needed to extend my quest beyond the scope of Christianity, which was both a relief and daunting. 
By the end of those three months, I had more answers. To some degree, I'll always be a spiritual seeker. In fact, I have been told this is a lonely and long path because there is no doctrine on which to rest. But I was able to make sense of my spiritual belief system. Of that time, I have said my purpose was to align with what I believed instead of maligning what I didn't believe. The culminating event of that quest, enter stage left, my visual arts major, was to create a visual representation of my beliefs so I could see more clearly what I believed. My belief system, in a nutshell, became a circle or a wheel of the year. In that one visual, I pulled together all of what I believed, weaving in and overlaying thoughts and beliefs from countless different spiritual traditions. I essentially created my own spiritual home, my Church of Lael. Then I framed it, outfitting it with a special hanger that allowed me to physically turn the wheel 90 degrees with every season of the year, reminding me to physically move into each season with a lot of intention. That was my first experience with going on a personal quest of understanding, and to a large degree, I applied that same methodology, even with some frustration and grief mixed in, when I set out to define the masculine and feminine for myself. In the classic tradition, it started out very basic with two columns, created by drawing a line down the center. I simply captured the words I associated with each particular energy. I tried my best not to overanalyze, but made sure each quality or trait on one side was matched by another trait on the other side, so I could start to see how they were complementary, like two halves of a whole. For a couple of years, I kept making note of what traits, ways of being, activities, and sensations felt like they belonged to either the feminine or the masculine. Specifically, I was looking for everything I captured to be good, meaning that it felt like it had value, purpose, and served a role, even if it felt hard, uncomfortable, or wasn't valued by our society. I remember this exercise from my grad school days studying behavioral science and working with data and how we were instructed to look for neutral ways of holding something like salt and pepper, left and right, fork and spoon, rather than loaded ways that they could skew the data or lead the witness like strong and weak, confident and insecure, selfish or selfless. As I kept building on this list, first with myself, then with individual clients, and eventually with groups of women, I found that the last piece was the hardest for us. Try as we might to make a case for slow and chaos and feelings to be of value, we were keenly aware that our language had already, had already hijacked them and deemed them to be less desirable, if not entirely worthless. Seeing that the words depicted in the two columns naturally set up a dichotomy as well, this or that, either or, us, them, suggested we must somehow choose one word over the other and couldn't have access to both. We had candid conversations about which side our society valued and rewarded the masculine, and how seeing those words in the masculine column and identifying with them somehow made us feel like less of a woman, or even worse, a traitor, like we weren't being loyal to what felt like it should be ours. It's hard to define energy when the lens we're looking through is about gender. 
For instance, the word greedy, ego, and selfish are often used to describe the masculine and are almost always associated with a male pronoun. If I were to combine all these words and what they infer into one conclusion, it might be to be masculine means that you're an inconsiderate asshole. Conversely, giving, unselfish, and kind are words commonly attributed to the feminine and have a female pronoun, which has the flavor of to be feminine means you're a nice pushover. Clearly exaggerations, but I'd be lying to myself if I denied these words weren't loaded for me. Whenever I encounter such charged and value-laden language to describe either the masculine or feminine energies, it made me want to shut down and move away from the conversation to further disassociate. What I wanted was for the words to have more of a magnetic pull on me, creating an immediate and visceral response of yes. I wanted words that would make me desire them both in equal measure. Thankfully, the women I invited into these conversations were brave enough to be honest, committed to speaking their own truths, and were willing to make themselves vulnerable. They were also largely word people like me and understood the power of our language to give meaning and context to our lives. They got how language had the power to connect us and build community. Having language helped us talk about our experiences as women. That was a start. I thought back to the circle I had used to map my spiritual beliefs and how that had helped me to make sense of my beliefs. I knew from experience that working with circles, from our menstrual cycles to our creative cycles to our seasonal cycles, proved to be a powerful tool to help us understand ourselves as women and the way we move through the world. I started playing with using a circle as a model to track my clients' experiences and demonstrated how they were moving in a cycle versus a line. So I considered how the perspective of a circle might further open us up and inform our conversation about the masculine and feminine, moving it from either-or polarities on a line to both and a whole cycle. What this circle brought to my own conversation of the masculine and the feminine was a concept of movement, which totally cut the cut identity off at the knees. In this model, there wasn't a place you lived, as in forever, permanently, for all eternity, but there were simply places through which you moved. This had me leaning into a conversation with myself instead of railing against it. It felt natural to me like the seasons and also felt generative, having me see more fully the value of all the words on both halves of the circle, rather than just the words our society holds up as the holy grail and the promised land. I started to more fully understand the degree to which I had marginally tolerated, flat out denied, and certainly lambasted myself for apparently basic equation of supply and demand, my basic human needs to replenish and restore resources after every above-ground trip. Have you ever had the experience of your body leading you to a threshold of understanding through which your brain hasn't, isn't yet ready to pass? 
Once I started naming feminine energy as distinctly different from masculine energy and began to play with this idea more in my work with myself, my clients, my groups, and in my writing, I found I was starting to do this thing with my hand, drawing an infinity sign with my pointer finger as I listened. I just kept doing it, thinking it was the way I was concentrating and figuring things out, not realizing that I was actually tracing this same shape again and again, an ancient shape. The symbol, I would soon learn, is based on the image of a snake eating its own tail. It's meant to represent infinity, life looping back on itself over and over in one continuous loop. It's also a circle with a twist in it, like like how you'd make one out of those balloon animals, essentially uniting two distinct cycles into one. It started to get really clear for me one night when our women's circle was engaging in the topic of balance. It inevitably comes up just about every gathering of women I have, so much so that it often feels chronic, never-ending, and almost cliche, because it's the concept that seems to get us closer to what we desire. The conversation, as we know it, essentially sets us up to make a choice, generally between work and life, but ultimately between our needs and others' needs, which sucks because it inevitably implies that one must come at the cost of the other, and we wanted access to both, to both for ourselves. So we looked at this conversation, we looked at the conversation underneath that balanced conversation. We wanted to feed our ambition, use our voices, wield our power, and leverage our intellect. We wanted to have more impact, stop playing so small, set more of the agendas, and be more of a force for change. We wanted to feel more independent, be in control, and make more money. We were also exhausted from getting degrees, climbing ladders, raising kids, pushing ourselves harder, longer, faster, and we just wanted to retreat. We wanted to have more time to be still, to be quiet, and to slow down, if not completely stop. We wanted to feed our spirits, fill our senses, move our bodies, write, and connect with our loved ones and communities in more meaningful ways. I started drawing as we were talking, and that's when it occurred to me. The conversation underneath balance is essentially a conversation about the feminine and masculine, and our desire to have access to both. Listening to our group of women that night, I could see more clearly what we truly desired was to have these two distinct energies within us more fully, more optimally, so we weren't so supercharged on one side and depleted on another. Seeing that visual of the masculine and feminine energies not only gave me a framework in which to see how they were distinct, but also how they were interrelated. It was a paradox. I realize it wasn't my map necessarily, but an ancient symbol with deep roots, similar to the yin-yang symbol. And yet, at the same time, I felt like I had somehow found the crack in the matrix for myself, as if I were seeing something new for the first time. It also helped me to name that what, what I was most hungry for in my life was the feminine. I could, I could see that where I would find, I could see that that was where I would find most of what I desired, peace, 
flow, grace, a slower pace, ease, connection, communion, reverence, awe, intimacy, compassion, depth, presence, and wisdom. And yet, I didn't feel the need to feed that desire at the cost of trash-talking or shaming the masculine energy in myself. I could continue to honor that side of myself even as I traveled more deeply into the feminine, simply by remembering that it's still there, still a part of me, and connected to the whole of who I am. So that is chapter five of my book, Sensemaking, Masculine and Feminine Bearings. And here's a bit of a riff um, on that since I've written it. Um, uh, this was this was the part of my book. This is the the most common question I got when I was writing my book and when I it was first released, and when I'm talking about it, people say, "What do you mean by masculine and feminine?" And that is um, that is a hard question to answer in a nutshell. And at first, I thought it was because I didn't have my words for it, um, and that I needed to sort of like get a pithy little statement. And then I realized that's not it at all. It's um, the answer to that question, what is the masculine and what is the feminine, is a deeply, deeply personal conversation that I believe is, um, is each of ours to own and to have. And it has to begin with curiosity, a desire to, a genuine desire to see them as distinct. So that curiosity has to be present first. Because what comes after is this deeply personal conversation with yourself that gets at defining that more clearly. And I had a woman email me the other day. She sent me a note after reading my book, thanking me. Um, and it was so wonderful. I love getting those emails and notes and texts from people. And she said, I love this line from your book. And it's the line that I just read in this chapter. She said, I realized I was deeply resistant to a personal conversation within myself. And so by me talking about this, I, I will often reference it as a street fight inside myself, my deep resistance to having this conversation. And by saying that um, I'm not alone in that, that it's very common to experience this resistance, it gave her the space she needed to name her own resistance and then be a choice about going in or continuing continuing to resist it. So I want to really acknowledge that it's not an easy conversation to have, it's not a popular conversation to have, and there are a million reasons why we can get away with not having it. Um, and when I look at the state of our world and the state of our environment and the lack of... Um, Oh man, there's so much I look at and I can say, you know what, can we get away with not having this conversation for much longer? Um, I do believe it is one of the central conversations of our time, understanding how we are leveraging the masculine and feminine energy inside our bodies. And so I've been thinking about um, the work that I do in the world and the not how I do it and the products that I do and the services that I offer, but really the heart of why I'm doing what I'm doing in the world. And what I've come to touch more closely and appreciate more keenly is that what I'm most passionate about is women, more women leading 
in this world, more women, more women leading. Um, and so I look at that in the context of this masculine and feminine energy conversation. And what I appreciate is that when I first work with women, when clients approach me, whether it's one-on-one -on -one coaching or whether it's working in the context of a group, they are most often identifying with my use of my masculine energy. I, I um, am direct and I am, um, I am out there. I put myself out there. I'll often swear. I'll use very pointed language. I'll be very cheeky. I'll be very... Uh, my ambition is very clear. I'll use my masculine energy um, very clearly as a beacon that is like a moth to a flame. And women are often drawn to me because of my the degree to which I give myself freedom to um, express and leverage from a business capacity my masculine energy. So women come in and we will often work in that realm first. So women will have these reservoirs of strength that they, in, in their masculine realm, what I would assert is more of a masculine realm, that they are managing very tightly. So it's biting their tongue when the emperor has no clothes. It's um, qualifying their statements uh, because they're controversial, unpopular, or they're the only person who is about to say the unpopular thing that will upset the apple cart. It's, um, it's calling out the inefficiencies that they experience at work or in relationship when things don't work and they're tired of pretending that they do or managing it. So it's those sides of themselves that they hold back and they say it's so exhausting um, I want to unleash that side of myself. So those are a lot of the scripts that we work on in first. What are the shoulds that you have for yourself as a leader? And what if you put those down? And what would that be like? And we play in those arenas and they find, wow, people are starting to use words like refreshing. And it's about time and gratitude. I'm so glad you called that out because I was thinking the same thing too. So when they experiment with it and they dabble with unleashing that masculine energy, what they find is they are rewarded, they are acknowledged, and yeah, they might step on a few toes, but when they connect it to the point of being in service versus serving their ego, they give themselves tons of green lights. So they name that masculine energy together. We name that masculine energy as distinct in the realms of uh, more often than not, their professional life and the work that they're doing in the world, sometimes in their relationships. And then we move into this feminine side and we address um, sort of the refueling that happens and the exhaustion that can happen and the, um, the pace that is not sustainable. That, that out, if masculine energy is outward expression... And, and pushing things forward and, and driving things forward and um, muscling, upsetting the apple cart, pushing for change. The uh, feminine energy is, is the part where it's the yawn, it's the exhaustion, it's the inward energy that becomes hungry. So we often will do work in the feminine realm um, with my clients or with groups around 
going in, going to the quiet places, going in nature, going into the quiet, wise voice inside yourself and turning down the noise, the noise in the external world that lives in the media, that lives on social media, that lives in the shoulds, that lives in all the pundits and, the sh and all the, the ways you're supposed to be and all the scripts that we hear so loudly. And going into the inner world, the quiet world of your, the wisest part of you, that voice that can only be heard when all the noise is turned down. The feminine is also the place where women reconnect with purpose and often the spiritual, um, yeah, I'll use that word, the spiritual pieces that have them see that what they want is actually connected to something that's greater than themselves. It might be a community, it might be an organization, it might be a mission in the world, um, and it might be advocacy, um, but it has them see that what they want isn't about their ego or them feeling important or them making more money or them getting the promotion. It's about moving um, us forward as, as, a, com as a community as, um, and seeing that we're all connected. So again, that yin and that yang, it's more of a holistic approach. Um, and so I wanted to, in order to access and to feed, and I'll use the word nourish, both sides of ourselves, we have to name them. So I'll, I'll hearken you back to that question that I put in that last chapter. How can we reclaim what we cannot first name? So without being able to see those two different energies as distinct, we're left to sort of the middle ground, and we move further and further away from the edges of that energy in ourself, which I would assert is where the juice really is. The furthest reaches of the masculine energy where we are leaning into the what we believe and we were we are taking risks and we are being bold and we are putting ourselves out there which requires such courage and such strength and then the furthest reaches of our feminine where we are we are plugging ourselves in deeply to our sources of power our sources of um, belief our sources of connectedness whatever fuels us from those deepest deepest levels and that's where the juice really lives so it's, it reminds me of that law of attraction, um, the, of, uh, the basic rule in physics, where our attention goes, energy flows. So in order to, um, so I, I toss it over to you, and in the very beginning of my book, I use the analogy of two gas tanks the, in the same van, and thinking I only had one gas tank, which was the masculine, but then realizing somewhere in me was this other gas tank, and the switch or the dial to access it was elusive to me. Um, and so if the masculine is one gas tank and the feminine is another gas tank, and they're both in you in this car that you're driving through life, which tank is typically full in you? and which might be running on fumes. And what would it look like if you were to turn the dial and allow yourself to be fueled more from the other tank, the tank that's running on fumes? What would that look like? How might you fill it up? 
And what would your life, how would you look like, how would you look differently in your life? How might you show up differently and what impact might you be having that's greater than what you have now? Okay then, thanks for listening to this episode and here's to living unscripted and having access to more of who we are and letting our bright lights shine freely. Go ahead, be luminous.